Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 74. Really fun interview today. I sat down with producer, engineer, and mixer Andrew Lappin. We got into stuff like drum recording techniques, staying objective during a long album project, creating contrast both sonically and musically, how to challenge collaborators without being disempowering, and why it's just as important to know what you don't want to do as it is to know what you do want to do. But first, we'll get a quick ramble in here. So today, I wanted to talk about an idea that I got introduced to listening to an old episode of Tim Ferriss's podcast. He was interviewing Hugh Jackman, an episode that I cannot recommend enough, by the way. And in that episode, Hugh mentioned this 85% rule. It's an idea that originated in the 80s when a sprint coach started studying nine-time Olympic gold medalist Carl Lewis. Carl dominated the 100-meter sprint throughout his entire career. Now, if you've ever played a sport, then you've probably feared hearing the coach tell you it was time for sprints. Full on, as fast as you can, across the field or court and back. By far the worst part of practice, right? So with the notion that a sprint meant as fast as you can with everything you've got, it's fascinating to know that Carl Lewis was almost always last or second to last at the 40 meter mark. That's almost halfway through the race. He was last but yet he has nine gold medals. The thing that the sprint coach realized as he watched Carl is that he was calm. He was always breathing at the same pace. He looked relaxed. A quick glance at the other runners would show grimaced faces, probably some flailing limbs. The exact image you have in your mind right now of your high school as fast as you can with everything you've got sprints. But by the 100 meter mark, Carl would always catch and blow past the other runners. Still calm, still relaxed, still focused. The difference is that Carl didn't run at 100%. He didn't sprint. He ran at 85%. His focus was on form and breathing, and by doing so, he was able to run at a faster pace for longer. As the other runners started to hit their peaks and fade, Carl's pace would remain unchanged. So I think you can imagine how this ties into the music industry. I've been running this race for more than 16 years now, and I have given my fair share of 100% sprint years many of them lined up next to each other one after another. I've done a crazy 28-hour workday. I've worked sessions until 6 a.m., slept on the couch for a couple hours, and then drove in traffic to another session. Everybody in this industry has those stories. But let me tell you, those years hurt. I'd always be on the edge of burnout. And let's be honest, there's no way I could have been doing my best work. When people work like that, their fuses get short, they get cranky, there's also this bravado sense of entitlement that comes from it all. This like, oh yeah, well, I worked 15 days straight, so I'm for sure going to get a Grammy. And then when that doesn't happen, you get pretty pissed about what you sacrificed. 
I definitely don't have that approach anymore. Now, I still give 100% when I work, don't get me wrong, but I don't drive my career at 100%. That's what was wearing me and so many people in this business down. It wasn't until I heard this interview with Hugh Jackman that I thought, hey, I've kind of taken this long game approach to my career already. I'm not pushing at 100%. I probably am working at like 85. So it's inspired me to keep that in the back of my mind and to focus on keeping the same pace, working enough that I know I can deliver my best work consistently, delivering a great podcast consistently, and not overstacking the calendar and then ending up cutting corners on whatever project I'm least excited about. And I know that sounds horrible, but we all know we've done that. Even if you didn't mean to, you have cut some corners on something because you were burnt out. Most everybody in this industry will tell you that they probably reached near burnout or considered quitting at some point. And if they're honest, they'll probably tell you that they aren't even sure it made a difference in their career. Ultimately, it's the long arc of your story that's going to define your accomplishments. Sure, you might have made the greatest record of your career in a 100-hour work week, but that doesn't mean if you do 52 of those in a year that you'll make 52 chart-topping records you're probably more likely to end up reconsidering your career choice, debating whether all that sacrifice was worth the outcome. So that's kind of it for this one. I just really wanted to share this idea with you because it resonated with me. Maybe it resonates with you, maybe it doesn't. But I personally think there's something to this career pace target of 85%. You'll avoid the frustrations of burnout and you'll still have the energy to take it up to 100 when it's necessary while still performing at your peak. Today's guest is producer, engineer, mixer, and multi-instrumentalist Andrew Lappin. Andrew prides himself on helping artists push boundaries while staying true to themselves. And from what I've heard, he's definitely doing that. Currently, he's working out of Wax LTD Studios in Hollywood, with credits including a mix of major label and independent artists with names like Lorraine, Chromio, Big Red Machine, and Stacy. He also composes and produces music for television, film, and radio. So super fun one today. Welcome to the show, Andrew Lappin. Hey, Andrew, what's up? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I'm uh, I'm excited to chat. I've got a yeah, whole list of questions that I'll probably lose track of, like I do <laughs> always. So, but we got to geek out just for a second. You have a really awesome studio. Thanks. And I know it's got Jimi Hendrix on its on its history list, and I'm a big Hendrix fan. So, how'd you get into this spot? And you got to tell me kind of where it is in Hollywood, because I, I know Hollywood so well. So it's near Sunset and Highland. Okay. So yeah, the studio was originally called TTG. It was built as a studio in like 1960 by Tom Hidley and a guy whose name I always forget. He's of Israeli descent. And he and Tom essentially founded TTG. I think it might have been 1965 is when it turned over. It was like a radio recording studio before, if I remember correctly. Okay. And yes, yeah, so they started TTG and that is definitely the more illustrious kind of start of that space. Tom Hadley was like a brilliant tech and actually developed the first 16-track tape machine upstairs from where the space I work in is. That's cool. Which is super cool. You know, everyone else had eight and four-track machines. And uh, yeah, they had a 16-track that he developed there. And yeah, the client list was wild. I mean, it was Frank Zappa Hot Rats. Hendrix did a bunch of stuff there. I mean, as the Hendrix archive stuff comes out, there's like... Gloria and was it something Mississippi's in the title? I forget the name. Um, some stuff from First Rays of the New Rising Sun was coming out. Okay. And he loved the place. Like apparently he like raved about it. And some of Neil Young's first record was there, Velvet Underground, self-titled. So I think I'm pretty sure Pale Blue Eyes was done there, um, which nice. is like one of my all-time favorite songs. The Doors, 
Linda Ronstadt, and then the Rocky soundtrack. There was a whole like soundstage upstairs, <laughs> which is now like a photo archive and kind of photo studio. Okay. But you know, the times I've been up there, it's huge. I mean, it's like multiple basketball courts in size. And and if you look at the building, you can kind of see like where the screen would have gone up for projection to play to picture. And then I guess they would do the rhythm section stuff downstairs. So like, you know, in the Rocky soundtrack, there's like a whole kind of band grooving along as the orchestra element gives way to the rhythm section element. And they would have done that downstairs in the studio that I'm working in. So it's super cool. I mean, yeah, there's photos on my website of some of those artists working in there. And it's amazing because it's built in, you know, the heyday of studios where there's a lot of integrity put into the construction of them. And, um, definitely have tried to like kind of continue that going forward. Not that I would remotely compare my worker discography to those, (laughs) those greats, but there's something cool about like, I don't know if I ever talked about this on the podcast. It's like, you've been in LA for a while. It's like you go in these rooms and they, they have an energy. Like when you walk into Capitol, like you can kind of, it feels like, I don't know, like, you know, you look around, you see Nat Cole's piano or like you walk into some mm-hmm. of the rooms at Henson or, you know, Sunset Sound Oceanway. and Sound Factory, Oceanway, yeah. and United, like that B room. Yeah. Anyway, there's just like, you can feel it when you go in these rooms. So it's awesome that you can have a space that is yours that also has that history. It's not like you have to wait for someone to be like, hey, man, we're going to Henson this week. Totally. To, to get it, that feeling. It feels really great too, because it's like, yeah, like I said, it was built with a lot of integrity and it has a great history. But I came up in like New York City where when I first started there, you know, a lot of people were working like kind of boutique project studios and it was definitely more of like the indie scene. And I feel like I was always fighting the room in some of these places where it's like just amazing to be in a place now where I'm like, okay, like, I'm set up for success. I can think about the important things rather than like, man, is this like sheetrock room with like some really basic <laughs> treatment or whatever going to just sound like utter garbage when I take it back to my studio. It's just nice to have like something I don't have to work against, something that's going to like really help me. Yeah. You yeah. know, and also have a in part a sonic character on the records I make because I always want, I, I love albums that have like the imprint of a specific place on them yeah so that's afforded to me at at this place but how i got there is funny enough you mentioned sunset sound when i first moved to la like seven years ago i shared a studio with joe ciccarelli at sunset sound and like the back house okay and i came into that because the guy next door was chris cody who i worked with a little bit well more i knew him in new york because we were in the new york scene kind of together he's a little older than i am but we knew each other and actually worked in a studio in new york downstairs from him for a while and um, yeah, Chris, when I was told him I was moving there, he's like, actually, I have a space. It's small kind of project studio. And Joe and I had known each other. We'd kind of just met over the years at things like AES and just kind of developed a little bit of like a friendship. And he and I went in on the studio together. And then like three years ago, something like that, I moved out into Wax. It just made sense. It was two blocks away. And I just needed more space, I felt like. And I needed a place where I could do a record top to bottom. You know, yeah. it's easier to control costs and just helps in every way to have a, you know, a constant in terms of location throughout the record making process. So that's, that's kind of the short story of it. That's cool. Well, you, you and Joe were like splitting weeks or, or months or whatever over there. Yeah. I mean, honestly, for like four years, it was really, it worked really well. And then there came a point where I was like, I think I need more time. And he was like, I think I need more time. And by that point, I had kind of felt like I maybe just needed 
more space. Joe's workflow is he likes to work in like Sunset Sound Studio One and then do overdubs in our spot, or that's what he would do. He would do overdubs in our spot. And um, yeah, and for me, it was just like, it's where the like, and we'll talk about this more, but like the production process of a record, some are like very linear and some are very like work and fits and starts. And so I was just was like, you know what? If I can move into a place where I can do a record top to bottom and if, you know, a week and a half and we're like, yeah, we got to like retract the drums on the first song. Like everything's ready to go. We can do that. It's not going to throw off our schedule. We're not going to have to call the front desk, get a studio like Sunset Sound or East West and be like, Hey, we got to get back in. It's time sensitive and try to deal with that. So it just made sense for my workflow and where I felt I was at in my career. And also in terms of like the time allocated that I needed to do my work. So I just talked to Joe last night, still friends. We're going to have coffee next week. I look up to him and he's a real one. So yeah. Yeah. Joe, if you're listening, I'll see you for coffee on Wednesday. (laughs) And you can come on the podcast too. Yes. Yeah. You should definitely interview him. I don't know him personally, but I've seen him work at Capitol years ago and uh, he's just seems like a great guy. Do you, is there any like lovely, lovely guy takeaways from him? Any, anything that he passed down to you that you keep in the back of your mind? Definitely. Like if it feels good, it is good. I like it. He's he's really cavalier with engineering. He is. <laughs> and I think like for a lot of people, it can be a little scary to do that, especially, I know a lot of people have like commitment anxiety. And I think I've been pretty good at kind of transcending that over the years, but definitely watching Joe work. Like I had the privilege of collaborating with him on some records and he's just not afraid to crank. And it's like, yeah, it feels good. And the, the big picture all comes together. He does a lot of like tracking with all the elements together the mix is there for you, like the core elements. So yeah, if you just got to like go for it and it's going to be exciting and feel good and feel finished. Cool. Yeah. So definitely from an engineering perspective and also just like, you know, nothing that's going to come as a surprise to a lot of people, but just like the strength of the song is paramount. The, the foundation of the art itself is paramount and everything else is just, you know, realizing the core vision. And I know that seems like a kind of oh duh thing to say, but I think for some people it can, especially for people who like produce, engineer, mix, write, there's so many trade-offs that happen just in terms of your brain allocation and energy <laughs> that sometimes something can fall by the wayside. So it's inspiring to watch him, you know, keeping one ear on the production, another ear on the sonics and everything in between. Yeah. And, you know, it's impressive to find people who can do that. It's hard. It's so hard. You engineer when you're producing? Yeah, I'd say 95% of the time. Yeah. I wouldn't say that I'm the most musical person when it comes to production, but like if I'm producing and engineering this, I can't do it. I got nothing. I can't even, if somebody asked me how a vocal take was while I'm running Pro Tools and like checking the compressor, I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know. I was not. I've got nothing, you know? It takes time. I mean, I definitely... When I first started out, I was probably a lot more concerned with the performance side of things than the engineering side of things. But I think at a certain point, you kind of like learn to split your brain into while also making them reciprocal and kind of talk to each other where it's funny. Sometimes now, like I kind of need to like hunch over the console and like twist something because like while I do that, I have like one side of my brain being like, okay, I'm going for like something specific with the engineering side of things and the other side of like maybe the snare drum needs to be tuned down or maybe we need a deeper snare or maybe we need a brighter snare or maybe take the front head off the kick. It's like kind of like instrument choice, arrangement stuff and the sonics all kind of dovetail or I'm like, oh, I don't know. There's like a moment where I'm like not looking at the screen, I'm hunched over the console and I'm like, oh, maybe we should 
talk one more time about the key. Like maybe there's actually a better key for this. I don't know. It's kind of like a seesaw, the different elements of Sonics versus arrangement and production and performance and that stuff. But it it takes time to get there, you know? Yes, it does. And, it, and it's like, I talked to so many people about like how they know a mix is done and like so many great mixers are like, it just felt done. It, when you're like a kid coming up, you're like, no, no, I need something definitive. And you're like, no, I just, it, it was done. I felt it. Yeah. I think it just kind of comes back to like a philosophy that I've arrived at that is essentially, I kind of refer to it as like your inner compass where over time you just sort of develop an instinct for things. And I call it a compass because it's kind of like trying to figure out where you are directionally, creatively. And um, an inner compass is kind of like your orientation. And I feel like, yeah, there's just a point having worked for a certain period of time and with different people and a lot of different types of music and just putting in your time that you kind of learn when a production, a composition, a mix is done. And yeah, you just kind of go on instinct, which has been something I keep trying to refine and work at. And that's what I call the compass. Yeah. It's like hitting that. You, you want to reach that point where you just hit that flow state like an athlete. They don't, they don't know what happened. All they know is they scored. Exactly. All you know is you made a record. Yes, totally. Well, there's a bunch of things I want to talk about, but I'd love to just get this short story of your musical background. Like, how did you, you play a bunch of instruments, which is amazing. How did you get into music? How did you know it's what you wanted to do? Yeah, so I, I came at this whole thing as, I don't know if I want to call my 10-year-old self a performer, but I came in as, you know, an instrumentalist. I grew up around music. My grandmother was in the Boston Symphony, my dad's mom. And um, one of my cousins is in the San Francisco Symphony. She still is. Barbara Bogotten, she's first cello in the San Francisco nice. Symphony. Has worked with Michael Tilson Thomas for years. So I grew up around music. My dad was always listening to music in the house. And, you know, anything from Ray Charles to Bach and Beethoven to, you know, Aretha Franklin and the Velvet Underground. And so I was always into music. I grew up in New York City. So downtown New York, pretty rich musical history around there. And... um yeah, when I was 10 years old, I just want to start playing music. And I'd taken trumpet lessons and I'd had no aptitude for it. And I said to my dad, I was like, I want to try playing guitar. And he was like, okay. And, you know, he believed that I was genuine in, in wanting to do that. And um, I got a guitar for my 10th birthday, I think it was. And I never looked back. And then I took lessons. I studied jazz and classical music when I was in middle school and high school. And then college, I didn't really want to do a music program. I had gotten accepted to a couple conservatories and I just last minute decided it wasn't for me. Um, I wanted just to try something else. So I did urban planning and international relations. Random. Yes. <laughs> but I still did music tech. I went to college in Massachusetts and there was a great music tech program where I went. I still did classes at New England Conservatory in jazz composition and arranging did some stuff at Berkeley, like ad hoc, and just kept working at it, even though it wasn't, you know, my major or anything. And then when I graduated college in like 2009, it was a horrible job market. And two of my really good childhood friends had started a, a boutique studio in Manhattan on 23rd Street. And they were like, yeah, we're going on tour for like a year or like eight months or something crazy. Like you worked in studios when you were in college. And I'm actually realizing I'm leaving an important part out. 
right before I started high school, I started working at a studio next to my high school, which was called West West Side Music, which was run by Alan Douches, who's a mastering engineer. But they were also doing recording and they had like a Sony console. And the summer before ninth grade, my mom was like, you should start thinking about, you know, like some sort of extracurricular activity. It's not just like playing guitar and bass in your room and like jamming with your friends. <laughs> and my mom's best friend knew the owner, Alan, and was like, do you want a 13 year old soon to be 14 year old working for you? And he was like, yeah, sure. I mean, he can like water the plants and, you know, restock the toilet paper. And it was awesome. I mean, it was great. I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, I was 13 going on 14, but I was like, okay, like there's another way of doing this. Like I'm really interested in like the realization of recordings and how that happens. And it doesn't just have to be like, oh, I'm going to study jazz and classical and be a performer. I could like seeing how you can have an impact on art and music without just performing and, you know, the studio being an environment where you can, you know, really make incredible things happen. So even while I was wiring plants and restocking toilet paper, I got to sit in on sessions. There were mastering sessions mostly during the day. And actually at that time, Kim Rosen, who now has her own mastering studio, I think it's called Knack Mastering, was working there. She had just started. She was older than me. I was, she was probably 22 and I was 13, 14. So I worked there like pretty much after school, the summer before ninth grade and after school. And some cool sessions came through, like Jerry from the Misfits was working on a record. And cool. there's this really cool hip hop group called Dalek that came through, kind of like alternative hip hop. And yeah, it was cool. I mean, I got to like be in a studio environment and learn a little bit about that. So then when I went to college, I, like I said, I majored in international relations and urban planning and some poli sci. And then there was a studio at my school. So I worked there with this really great guy named Paul Lerman, who was pretty instrumental in like the development of MIDI and used to work at Motu. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I got to do that and we would record things like chamber music and gamelan ensemble and stuff like that. And then I was also doing music classes on the side at like New England Conservatory, some stuff at Berkeley. One of my best friends from college who I played in a band with, his dad was a professor at Berkeley. So we got to like use Berkeley rooms and spaces and, it was really cool. I mean, in the end, I'm glad I didn't go to conservatory because I think I would have been pretty disenchanted had I stuck it out. And then to go back to where I went on this tangent, when I graduated <laughs> college in 2009, two of my best friends growing up had started a boutique studio on 23rd Street in Manhattan. I would moved back to New York. Job market was abysmal. And they were like, look, if you want, like, take care of these sessions while we're away, you know, put the rent money, like once the rent's made, put it in the bank account and the rest of the time, like you do you, which was awesome. So yeah, they were on tour for like eight months and I would just, you know, do vocal sessions, a lot of like hip hop, late night vocal sessions, you know, Hey man, can I get an hour? Can I get two hours? You know, things like that. Yeah. And then, you know, on the side, if there was nothing booked on like a Saturday or Sunday or whenever I would just, you know, talk to friends who had bands and be like, Hey, you want to record and come in and, We'd lay some stuff down and, you know, it was trial by fire in that way. I'd obviously had like some studio experience early on, but like nothing beats for me. Uh, I'm a hands-on practical learner. Like I have to do it to learn it. Oh yeah. So it was great. And then, you know, this is before things like mix with the masters and Pensado's place and stuff. So a lot of it was just like reading old tape ops that were lying around and <laughs> the REP forum had just like was online Oh yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So reading about that and being like, okay, yeah, like maybe I should 
flip the phase of the kick against the overheads and see if that's better. So like learning the engineering side of things while also like finding people who would like let me produce their records. And it was really foundational for what I do. And then from there I started being like, okay, I would like to get a more, for lack of a better word, like professional mentorship kind of relationship going. So I had a friend who was working at Headgear Studios in Brooklyn, and I just kind of got a job as like assistant fill-in, which was really cool. Um, I had experience with consoles from having worked with Alan. He had a Sony console. They had a Trident B-Range at Headgear. So I learned that and got to like fill in on sessions when, you know, my friend who was an assistant there couldn't do it. So that was cool. And just kept doing the freelance thing and producing for other people. And then in 2012, 11, I don't remember. I started working with a producer named Chris Zane, whose work I had admired for a long time. And he, he worked with like the Walkman and Passion Pit and a bunch of other bands that I really loved. And, um, I started working for him like towards the end of the third Passion Pit record. And then just as like an assistant, we did record for St. Lucia called Matter. And that was really cool and various other things. And um, that was a huge experience for me. I mean, I love Chris to death. I talked to him this morning, still friends. And then I ended up kind of engineering for him for things he would produce. We collaborated on a lot of stuff and very cool. And we're friends to this day. And, and then ultimately he moved to London and I said, you know, I think it might be time for me to move to LA, try something different. And I moved here seven years ago. And here you are. I guess it's a little longer than than we needed to go through, but that's the long and short of it. But we have it all. That's what's important is that we got it all. You have it all, you can edit it. We yeah. got it. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. I just remember, because I, I know you were on Hanging Out with Audio Files, which is a great podcast mm -hmm. if anybody's listening to this and they have not heard that. And so I had, a, I had a little bit of your backstory, but I didn't realize this. So I guess Headgear was kind of like your the closest thing to like being a big studio runner that you had, but mostly you kind of worked with individuals, more of like a mentorship type situation than like a on staff at a studio vibe, right? Yeah. I mean, well, going back to like early, early days, I mean, with Alan, yeah. I mean, that was a straight up runner. I mean, yeah. they weren't going to let me do anything. I barely, I didn't really know Pro Tools. I didn't know Steinberg or anything. Um, right. I started learning then DAWs, what was it? Pro Tools 7, 6 in I don't even know what it was in 2000 and this is like 2001, 2002. I don't even remember. No, like four or five. <laughs> it might've been five. Yeah. So I didn't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, Alan is, was definitely an early mentor. I mean, just even like the basic thing taken away from him was, you know, be bold. I like it. Like no time for safety. You know, yeah. there's no playing it safe. Like if you play it safe, you're dead. I respected that a lot. And then, yeah, I mean, headgear was definitely more of a like, it was a services job because, you know, as an assistant, you're just there to make sure a visiting engineer. I, I ended up working with a lot of people who worked there regularly. So there wasn't a ton of like problem solving or stuff I had to do. It was a lot of just learning 
oh, like John Agnello would be there and you'd be like, oh, like, yeah, maybe we should like do a overdub. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go out and set up the, if he said he wants to do an acoustic guitar, I'll set up a couple of mics that I know he likes. Or then my friend who was the you know usual assistant said, oh, John likes this, this and that. So kind of like write that down and just that taught me like knowing how to be prepared for a session. Yeah. But then I also got to be a fly on the wall and like see him as a producer, be like, okay, this is how he's like building an economy of sound and how he's arranging this. You know, it was a lot of like rock bands. So that's a very specific sort of arrangement. A lot of times the setup of the band is the arrangement, whether it's two guitars, bass, drums, vocals, whatever. But seeing how he did that was really cool. And other people would come and visit and I'd also see like what not to do. <laughs> like, oh, wow, this is a mess. So yeah, so that was um, cool. And then, yeah, working with an individual like Chris Zane was definitely like, you know, there's, I think he had a specific kind of like brand and approach and that was cool too. And like, you know, I happened to really like a lot of those records and there were times where, you know, Chris, if you're listening, I would have done something different, but you know, I think that's <laughs> what happens. You know, you, you start to develop like, again, your compass and you kind of start to see like, what's my sound, what's my approach and how do I tailor it for the artist at hand? And I, to this day, I try to do that. I try to like facilitate the artist rather than be like, this is my method and you have to get on board with my method. Yeah. And I think having all those different experiences was really fundamental to me being able to do that and not feel like I'm not bringing some sort of structure to the project. It can be fluid. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super important. Well, I think that's a good segue to kind of like your production style. And I, I want to talk about a specific record a bit because I just listened to it and it fucking blew my mind. But I did want to ask as a multi-instrumentalist, are you the kind of person that likes to get hands-on and play parts when you're producing? Or do you like to use that knowledge to kind of guide performances and like, you know, drop tips for to lead somebody down a path when it comes to playing? Are you doing a lot of playing on the records or guiding? It really varies. I mean, I learned early on having played on a session when I was young with like a kind of hot shot. Like I was probably in high school, I was playing on a session and, you know, some sort of like producer in his twenties who I remember there was one point where we were struggling to get a take and we were very young. We must've been like 16 years old. And the producer like took the bass out of the bass player's hand and was like, no, it's gotta be like this. And I, and I saw the look on the bass player's face and I was just like, oh man, like it just sunk. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that like logged in as like maybe not the best bedside manner. And I just kind of ask people along the way, like there's definitely times, especially with writing, you know, I have a background in music and theory. So, you know, I have a pretty wide chord vocabulary and I can, if someone's like, what's this chord? I'll be like, okay, I'll like chart it out for them and I can do that. And there's times and places where I do that. And there's times where I'm like, no, let's just go by ear. It's cool. Like keep the momentum going. It's really on a case by case basis. Like my feeling is if someone's playing the instrument and like trying to convey the idea, like let's try to do that. And then if it's really not happening, I might say suggestively, hey, can I maybe present an idea to you? But I won't take the guitar out of their hand or the bass out of their hand or like kick them away off the piano bench. I'll sit next to them on the piano or I'll take another guitar and we'll kind of mirror each other. And I'll be like, what if you did this? Or what if you did that? Or you voiced this chord with this inversion around that inversion? And like, you just read the room. Yeah. You know, that's so much of it is I don't want to go back to that feeling that the bass player in my high school band had where his face sunk because someone just like jacked the instrument from his hands. I just think, yeah, that's poor form. And like the social interactions in these, in, in sessions is really important. And that's something, again, you learn over time is how to read the room. So having said that, there are a lot of times where 
you know, in writing sessions where we oftentimes end up, you know, I'll end up developing the song start to finish. I end up playing like maybe 90% of the instruments. And if we need auxiliary players for strings or horns or a drummer, if I'm not up to the task at drums, you know, we bring someone in. Everything's always up for discussion. It's never like, I'm going to do it this way, yeah. you know? Yeah. I usually try to work with the person to, if they f- have the conviction, like I'll sit with you to get it right. And then if in two weeks you listen back, you're like, yeah, I don't know if it's right. Then I might say, okay, in the interest of time and resources, like, do you want me to give it a go? But I'm, I mean, I'm working on a record now where the guitar player was getting really discouraged and was like, you should take a stab at it. And I was like, you sure? Like there is a vibe to the way you're playing it. And the guitar player was like, nah, like you tried. And I tried it and I was like, look, I've done like three takes of this. Sure. Maybe it's tight but it like doesn't have the thing. Like I'm not you. And, and we worked out and we got it and it sounds awesome. So yeah, you know, every situation is different. Just be empathetic. <laughs> yeah, totally. Is, is my philosophy. And just because I can do it doesn't mean it's going to have the same feeling. You know, that's what's so cool about this is it's in the hands. It is. That's what I was going to say is it does like, I could play a part. You could play the exact same part on the exact same guitar. It's going to have a totally different thing. And it's like when you're dealing with, you're dealing with a band where people are playing instruments, you know, and the sound revolves around those people's vibe and their fingers and everything like that. You start taking that away. It's like taking these little pieces of the sound of a band out. Mm-hmm. And you might not notice, but there's there'll always be this thing where it's like, yeah. mostly sounds like the band. It sounds good, but I just can't put my finger on it. Yeah, I mean, if you're working with a band, you want the character. And it's yeah, it's funny. Sometimes you like listen, like I listen back to things I've produced that's like a full band, like four people or five people, who, however many people have like, this is the personnel. And you like listen back and you slow up the bass and drums. It's like, oh, it's funny. Like the kick is a little ahead and the bass is a tiny bit behind. And then the guitar is kind of like filling in the gaps. And then the keyboards is filling even more gaps because it's not as transient. It's like more of a pattern. Like, okay, like there's a, there's a push and pull here. That's like really amazing. Yeah. It's not all like on the grid perfectly and it's not all perfectly lining up, but there's a law of averages that happens that is the sound of yeah. the band. And I think that's cool. You know, a lot of times where I end up playing the lion's share of the instruments is when I'm co-writing with someone and it's like a solo artist. And that's been happening a lot more recently where I'm in a writing session, it's a singer and, you know, co-songwriter, we're doing a co-write and then I'm building pretty much the entire track. track Because they're more interested in like the vocal, the narrative of the song and that's kind of what our collaboration is. And from, and I'm realizing it production wise with them and, you know, instrumentally as well. Yeah. That's very cool. I wanted to ask you about a particular record, the Lorraine album fatigue that it's right here. See, <laughs> I have it up on the wall. <laughs> yes, you do. Anyway, I, I, when did that record come out? It's new. It's new, right? Yeah. It came out last year. Okay. And I sat down to like get ready for this podcast and I was just taking some notes and I just like popped it on. And, uh, it's like 30 minutes later, I was just like, it's crazy. Like, I can't really describe to people. It's like a sonic aural adventure that doesn't translate very well verbally. Anyway, I really enjoyed it. There's so much dope shit in there. Oh, thanks. Uh, it sounds like it took, like, a decade. Like, <laughs> can, we, can we talk about your production process? It aged me multiple <laughs> decades. So, yeah, I mean, first things first, like, it starts with Taja, who is Lorraine Taja Cheek, who is the artist known as Lorraine. I've known Taja for a long time. I mean, we met 11, 12 years ago, maybe at this point. I don't even know. Um, It's been over a decade. And Taja's just 
doesn't hear music like anyone else, doesn't think like anyone else, you know, and that's really where it comes from. Like, I don't respond to every artist the same way. And what that record is, is really like the sound of our collaboration and like the way I work with other artists oftentimes doesn't have the same bearing on like how I work with Taja. Right. So that fundamentally starts from her and just the way she hears things is unlike anyone else I know and is truly unique, both as a writer, but also as a performer. I mean, she's an incredible singer and um, an amazing bass player. She's like maybe my favorite bass player. Badass. She's just got such a great groove and a great feel. And yeah, so that was our second record together. We had done a record previously, her first kind of record, which was sort of like a mixtape kind of thing. Um, We did that in New York before I moved to LA. And then we tend to like to get into things right away. So like as soon as the last record comes out, we're like, okay, let's do it. So that actually has happened. We're in the middle of a third record now. But yeah, she came out really like it started in 2019 in the fall. She came out to LA to my spot at Sunset Sound. And we just spent a week kind of storyboarding is what I call it. Just like working through some preliminary ideas. And sometimes she comes in with, you know, something that's just a snippet. Like it's maybe a one progression and we have to kind of extrapolate it into a bigger piece of music. And then there's times where it's like, yeah, I've got like three sections and it's a matter of structuring and kind of arranging anything goes. We spent like a week doing that in fall 2019 in my studio in LA. And then I had to go to New York. She's based in Brooklyn and we tracked some drums and stuff in New York and the things we had kind of worked on. And then end of the year, end of 2019 to like early 2020, we around the holidays, we did some more work on the record and then we took a lot of time off and then we regrouped in like spring 2020 and chipped away at the stuff we had started and even started some new stuff. And it was just this kind of like iterative process and you know, anything goes with it. Like there's a lot of, just kind of impressionistic throwing paint stuff. I mean, definitely it's the sort of thing where I do feel like I have to impart a structure because it can easily just, some projects become so open-ended that you're like, okay, this is like totally unmoored. I think we're quite good at not getting to that (laughs) point where it's like, we're in the, we're in the weeds to the point where it's like, you know, you're in like the hedge maze and you're just running around in, in circles. So there's, yeah, it's just a lot of like taking small things, extrapolating fleshing them out, you know, and then once we have kind of like a bigger arrangement mapped out and a goal and kind of what, where we want the pieces of music to go, cause they're very fluid, like where one ends and another begins is pretty open. Then we're kind of like filling in kind of coloring in the yeah. outline a little bit more. I mean, that can be anything under the sun. I mean, there's a song on the record, find it the second song, which is like a three movement piece. And Taja had the idea for the first part, which kind of has like an ostinato vocal and she'll give me like loose prompts. Like I want it to feel like it's down two whole steps. I don't actually know how many whole steps it's down, but she's like, she's like, I want it to pitch down. I want it to be a little slower. I want it to like have a different feeling. And then she had the field recording that ends that song, which took place at a family friend's funeral service with this like local organist who was playing um, essentially an old hymnal on B3 organ. She's like, I really want to use this thing. And I'm like, well, it's incredible. You just did this on your iPhone. So getting those three sections to work together was a monumental task, but we kind of followed a feeling. And from there, it's just a matter of how to make these insane 
things on paper are reality and it worked. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's super cool. Yeah. And it's challenging. And then, you know, there's more things that are self-contained. So it's just, I mean, making those records is incredibly involved in taxing, but also, you know, one of the, like the great pleasures of my life and career is making these albums. And that one fatigue in particular was just, it drove me to the brink a few times, <laughs> but every time I was like, I, I know, I know this is coming together. I know this is, I know we're going to get there. I know it's going to come full circle. I just need to like, and that's why it was actually really good to have little breaks in between. And we still work that way where we'll, we'll do two weeks on a month or two off two weeks on. And it's great. Cause every time I like come back to you, I'm like, Oh, like I can see 10 steps ahead here. Yeah. And if I can, I'll like call Taj and be like, you know, I feel like a little bit of a block here. And she'd be like, yeah, I thought that, but what about this? And I'm like, Oh, that's a cool idea. Like she's like, yeah, what if it sounds like it's underwater for 18 bars, then it comes up to the service. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. Like a diver coming up. How do I make that happen? How do I make it sound like you're the diver and you come up to the surface and you're on some like crazy Island made of some rare mineral. <laughs> It'll literally be like, those would be like the insane. <laughs> I know it sounds like some like hippie, dippy LA bullshit, which she does accuse me of sometimes, but it's like, that, that is kind of how it is, is trying to make a little bit of a movie and then color in the lines. Yeah. Well, it flows like, I didn't even realize, I thought I was on like the third song and like, mm -hmm. I flipped back over and looked and I was like, you know, I don't remember how many, there's like 12 or 14 and there's like all those interludes and everything yeah. just like goes. And I was, I didn't, I was like 25 minutes in. I was like, oh, wow. But it's really coming from the angle of somebody that doesn't work on a lot of full records. Like I've done, I've done a handful of full albums, mm -hmm. but generally it's like mix one song. It's always like one song, two songs, maybe an EP, but then still like so many people like do their EP like across the span of a year. So it's like, I'm still not doing like five songs at once. I'm doing, still doing one. Yeah. It's hard to like live in it, right? Yeah. And then like, you know, your head space changes, like the tools you're using might change. You might get Definitely. hot on some plugin or something. But anyway, I just, from a logistic, because I, I want to know, like, how do you, how did you guys structure something that flows so well? Did you kind of have like a quote demo that was like working top to bottom or like as you're working on songs, you're like, Oh, it's going to lead into this in this manner. It's a little bit of both. Like definitely we talk about sequence as we go, because these records okay. are meant to be consumed top to bottom. And that, that can be a challenge for a lot of listeners. So we've tried to craft it to be a really great, seamless top to bottom listening experience. And it's like, if you put it on from the first second and then you finish it and like, you're with us the full time. I mean, Definitely, as we keep going, we try to also make things work as standalone units because we recognize that, you know, that's important too. It's kind of like, I kind of joke with it, it's like little islands in a big archipelago sort of thing where it's like <laughs> each one is its own little environment, but they form a greater whole. Right. That's kind of how I, I think of the record. So we do talk about that stuff. It's not like we're like, this is track one, this is track two, this is track three. Like it mutates and it evolves over time. I mean, Taj and I and Ben Katz, who's involved in the project as well, like we share track lists and we will say, oh, maybe there's a track one. I mean, we definitely knew like Fly Die was going to be the first track and we kind of knew that Take Two was going to be the last track. And then the rest was yeah. like, okay, like as it goes, we'll see what works. And then Taja, of course, had the final say on like the track order and Ben and I were like, okay, cool. That, that really works for us. We put in a playlist, spend some time with it, walking around being like, okay, that flows well. And then we actually brought in our friend Jasper, who has a project called Slauson Malone One that I'm, I'm actually currently working with in a production capacity. And 
his records are very similar in that they flow seamlessly top to bottom and they're incredible experiences. And we asked him to kind of do the final sequencing of the record to make it like kind of help us with transitions. And um, that's really when that snapped into place as like, okay, this is a whole fluid start to finish piece of music that flows track to track. So, and it made, it was challenging. Cause like then once we had like one big wave file, I had to like chop it up and go back and forth with the mastering engineer. And it's like, where's a good edit point so we don't get a pop, you know, at the top of something yeah. or the end of something. And obviously there's the whole thing with, um, you know, tagging, you know, for um, ISR C codes and things like right. that. But yeah, the sequencing is a really important character in these records. And, um, and then, yeah, Taj is just like kind of a documentarian of everyday life. I mean, she's always taking field recordings and she's always voice memos in her phone or she'll take something and she has a Kaleido loop from Critter and Guitari. And she's always, She's always recording us too, like when we're in the studio, which is funny. And sometimes things get pitched down and become like little ad libs. It's just kind of this like running documentarian thing she has. That's cool. She's like an audio how to with John Wilson, kind of. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that show. <laughs> I haven't, but she's just kind of like a constant documentarian of everyday life and like, and those around her and, and it really personalizes it. There's something almost like diaristic or is that a word pertaining to a diary? Diaristic. I'm going to assume that's a word. It's a word now. It's a word now, yeah. And um, even like to the point where like sometimes it's like kind of voyeuristic as the listener of like, oh, this is like an intimate moment in this person's life. And you know, now on this third record, we're actually trying to like take those and weave them more into like the songs themselves and like actually build songs from some of these concepts. I don't want to give away too much because <laughs> the record will come out. It's we'll finish it at some point. But yeah, that's kind of one of the things we're doing is like, okay, we've got these kind of like songs, then field recording thing or like kind of on these diaristic little interludes some a lot of which have music in them or people humming things or just these little like kind of vignettes and snapshots of everyday life and now we're like what if we took those and made a full song out of it like as an inspiration point or weave it into the song so that's been a fun challenge to kind of bring the two worlds together more that's awesome and then yeah i mean it's i don't know it's a lot of times just like people in a room trying to entertain each other <laughs> And have fun. And, you know, Taja really gives me enough rope. I mean, sometimes I'm like, is it enough rope to hang myself? <laughs> <laughs> but she's a truly wonderful collaborator. Ben's a great collaborator. And, you know, it's my pleasure to be now doing this for a third time, at least for the Lorraine project. She and I have worked on stuff outside of Lorraine as well. But, um, yeah, and it's just being totally fearless of like, yeah, let's try the most unorthodox methods we can come up with. Let's you know, run every track through a tape machine and bring it back in and drop it in and line it up and see if that sounds better. Or let's flip the tape or put the space echo on the entire mix and see what happens or a flanger on the entire mix or I don't know, do very speed. Yeah. Record something at 30 ips and then play it back 15 ips and make a little sample out of it and see if that's cool. It's like, a lot of stuff like that, it, as well as like, you know, conventional recording methods of setting up, right. you know, for a drum. But everything kind of has like a few little, whatever a norm is. I mean, I'm learning. I don't know if I really have a norm, but like deviating from whatever a norm might be yeah, at every point. And sometimes I'm like, this is worthless. Why did I do this? I mean, you got to cover your ass. It's like having a molt and having sends on a console is really helpful in that regard. But yeah, you know, <laughs> you're like, okay, yeah, I'll run the overheads parallel to a crazy H3000 patch or to some bizarre pedal chain and see what happens. And a lot of times it's cool and sometimes it's not. And you just, 
you've covered your bases, you know, and uh, yeah, you can always hide and make an act of the things that don't work because they're separate. That's right. That's right. But yeah, that's kind of how those records get made. Oh, I was just going to say for anybody that is unfamiliar with like a malt, Andrew's basically saying like he recorded the overheads safely and then went to town getting weird. So he had two versions. Yeah. And I'll do that also with like both effects and compression. Most of the time I like to commit to things because it just informs every other decision along the way. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. If I have to redo something, it's probably because the part is wrong or something else more important is wrong. You know, it's like, it's probably not, I think I've gotten to the point now where like I've learned again with the compass, like where I want the engineering to be. And, you know, there are some times where we record something on, on, especially with like a project like Lorraine that's very iterative and other projects that are really iterative. What sounds awesome on day four by day 20, when you've kind of reworked other things and things like that, you might have to redo what you did on day four. And every now and then that happens. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier in this conversation where it's really great to have a studio where like my drums are always mic'd. You know, if we need to retract something, sure, I might swap out a kick or uh, or toms or change the kit, you know, and but the mics are placed. They're pretty much there. They're into the pre's. There's sends on the console so I can send the compressors or I can group stuff together and do sub mixes on the way in and cover my bases and cover my ass. Yeah. And it's no sweat. It's like we're not just like booking another studio to do drums again for a day and wasting money. It can just happen quickly and that's it. And yeah. for me, it's important to be able to do that because workflows can be really labyrinthine. And then, as I said earlier, some things are really linear and you never look back and you just you have a story and you're just going with the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, uh, this kind of probably applies to Lorraine, but probably a lot of your work. Do you think a lot about listener expectations and like when to break and when to like fulfill expectations for somebody, whether it be sonically or like from an arrangement standpoint? You know what I mean? It's like, you know how like you're listening to something, like we'll use Lorraine for an example, like that first track, like the drums are like really dirty and they're like kind of panning and like it's really kind of crazy and everything's like kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then the second track comes in and if I remember correctly, it's like this like filtered b- bass and vocal or maybe it's just the bass, but it's like such yeah. a juxtaposition that you're like, you just kind of like sit up and you're like, oh, this, what's going on now? And I heard that a lot across that record. Is that something that you think about when you're producing a record? Like trying to either give a listener exactly what they want in a fulfilling way or give them exactly what they are not expecting in an equally fulfilling way. Um, I don't know if it, if there's that level of like pretense about it. I think it's at the end of the day, it's like I'm just following what feels right. The compass. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record with this compass analogy. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of following, you know, like for me, it's always just like what's going to serve the music best and that goes for anything like that's sort of experimental and defies kind of linear structure like Lorraine or something that's like even more pop oriented like you know what I've done with Stacy or or a singer songwriter I'm working with now named Melina Cadiz like you kind of just learn you know what is gonna serve this the best and for that first song on the Lorraine record Fly Die I mean we just had we kind of had like a picture in our head like we almost wanted it to sound kind of like a city scene in a way yeah i joked with her like we wanted a song that was going to kind of like set the stage for the record and kind of like start with something very immersive which you know you talked about like the panning drums i'm pretty sure that was a very speed thing where like maybe we did the drums at one speed and then we played it back 
faster on yeah. playback. I'm pretty sure we did that. And there was a lot of like chopping and moving stuff around. And yeah. there's obviously a lot of negative space in that song. Like it'll be, you know, one bar and then silence and then another bar and silence. And like there's field recordings that are panning around and stuff. And yeah, we kind of like wanted to set a scene and then the back half, it's like crashing 808s and everything's running through a, like a Moog or Altec filter. Right. And, or an overstayer and like side chaining and crushed. And yeah, I mean, all that was in service of a, like, we wanted in the first half to kind of create like a very immersive swirling technicolor scene. And then the back half was like, damn, we're going to like drop it and really make it so like, okay, like pay attention. <laughs> yeah. You know? So yeah, that, that was that, but it wasn't, you know, necessarily trying to like, I guess in some ways, yeah, we were trying to like establish and defy expectation. So I don't know if that's totally answering your question. Yeah. But I do think that kind of taps into like another philosophy I have, which is like doing an arrangement it is for me a lot about that. It's like, how do you circumvent expectation? And then how do you play into expectation? Yeah. You know, like sometimes you kind of got to do the obvious thing so that then you've built up enough goodwill to then like totally pull the rug out, you know? Yes. Or vice versa. So, you know, definitely with some projects I try to do that where it's like, okay, like we've kind of been at cruising altitude for a while at the risk of almost, you know, exploiting what we've done. And then you kind of circumvent expectation and, and hit them with something that should still feel true to the song and not just like, Oh, we're doing this just to mess with someone, you know, like for me, it's, it has to work emotionally, but sometimes that's what you want to do. Sometimes you just want to, you know, what was it called in like horror movies, like jump scare people? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. yeah sometimes you want to do that. And sometimes you just want to, like I said, reach cruising altitude and, and it stays there. Yeah. You know, it's a great phrase. It's totally song dependent. And I try to do a little bit of that, like in, you know, things that have more of a pop structure. I mean, I think everyone kind of does that where it's like, you know, you listen to some songs and there's like a breakdown third chorus and then there's negative space. Maybe they add an extra bar of two and then bam, the last chorus hits like, right. You hear that all the time in pop music and yep. it's really satisfying. You know, there's clearly a, a goal there of, you know, it might be predictable at a certain point, but like when it's done right, it's thrilling. And that's in service of, you know, some sort of emotional connection and resonance with the listener. Totally. It's always what serves the song. And that's the thing that comes up on this podcast all the time is, is it's like, it's got to work. You know, it could be the coolest distorted vocal ever, but doesn't work for the song. Oh, <laughs> uh, there's so many times where I've been like, that can be a challenge for me sometimes where it's like having an engineering side to my brain and also, you know, being very involved in production arrangement, occasionally playing. It's like, it's funny. I was working on something. I have my own project that I've started working on. And the other day I was talking to my collaborator and I've done a bunch of guitar parts and I was like, you know, you might like kind of tell me what you think. And I send it over to him. He sent it back and he like straight up muted two guitar parts. And I was like, man, you muted those. And he was like, yeah, I just didn't think they were working. I was like, oh man, but like, they sound so good. I like really love the tone of them. I, you know, I gotten my tone just right. It sounded really cool. I had like a cool space echo thing going too. And he was like, yeah, it just wasn't right. I was like, okay. Like for a second, I was kind of bummed, but I was like, you know what? I, I, I shouldn't just keep something because sonically it's impressive. I've gotten good at that of like, okay, like snap out of it. It's a great sound. You'll have other great sounds that will fit in the record and and work for the arrangement. Don't get attached to something just because it sounds awesome. That's not a good reason. Well, it's one of those things that it takes a long time, a lot of your career to get out of that space. It's just, I think about like so many mixes that I did when I was a kid where it's like, 
I changed so much stuff, like really just like went so far to the point where I would never get away with that now, but it's, you're working with like, you know, inexperienced artists who it sounds better, but yeah, just because you can doesn't mean that you should, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like if there was an energy in what was there, like, why do you start going too far, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Just don't do anything just for the sake of doing it, doing it because you feel something. And, you know, for me, being able to be a good judge of that is like trusting my collaborators just as they trust me. You know, it's a two-way street. It's never like, it's my way or the highway. I like it when people speak up and are like, yeah, I'm not sure this part's working or that part's working. I'm like, cool. Like we're, we're meeting in the middle to make something greater than each one of us. And that's really fun and exciting to me. It's funny, like the records I'm most excited about are, are ones that have like conversations like that. And the ones that I did a record for someone and it was a lot of just like sitting on the sofa, staring in the back of my head and I'm playing a bunch of stuff and I'm like, do you like this? Do you not like this? And they're like, yeah, I just, I, I like it. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't know. Is it one of the records I'm most excited about? No, that I did, you know, it's definitely doesn't make me as excited as Lorraine or even like things I've mixed where it's a big conversation. Like, you know, with Chromeo, Dave and P are like super involved in the mixes. The notes are like comprehensive. And, you know, some people would like drag their feed and be like, oh man, notes, notes, like you're writing paragraphs. It's like, nah, it's like, let's get this right. I like to rise to the occasion and you want that out of me. And I want that for myself and for this collaboration for what we're making. So yeah, I mean, there's no reason to just leave something in because it sounds cool on its own. No, nothing's in a silo ever. Yeah, totally. I don't know if you've experienced this in LA. I engineered so many songwriting sessions and, you know, no shade to anybody in Los Angeles, but it's totally an LA thing. I feel like so many people in LA just agree. They're like, oh yeah, it sounds great. That's dope. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And it's like, you're talking about like, you love to work with a collaborator that will actually say, whoa, I think we can beat that. And I just like, I saw so many like really talented people just kind of agree with each other to be polite because they'd never met before. And you're just like, this isn't great. And you both know this isn't great. I know it's not great. The A&R guy is going to come in here in a second. They're going to know it's not great. Why doesn't anybody just be like, let's just do another melody. But some, there's something about those like blind songwriting sessions that nobody wants to like ruffle any feathers, but you only hold yourself back. Yeah. Good enough is like, I don't know. There's no such thing as good enough. Like, I shouldn't say it like, you know, obviously you don't want to belabor something trivial to the point where you're like, you're expending energy and it's not going to add that much value to the song. Like, look, everything's a trade-off. Like it's hard to make a record under the best circumstances, you know, and sure. a lot of times we're dealing with limits. So pick your battles. Every record has some sort of compromise in it, you know? Yes. But it's funny. My wife was saying this to me the other day. She's like, you really challenge people. And I was like, okay where's this going? <laughs> it's not like you're over demanding, but like you do ask of your collaborators, you know, to get out of their comfort zone a little bit. And especially, I, I think that's something I do with like, I mean, in writing sessions and things like that, obviously I think what you're referring to with this kind of like, yeah, it's good enough, like positivity cheer thing. It's good. You should be positive. I mean, it's fun to make music. It's fun to, you know, a lot of these sessions I do, the song doesn't exist in any form, right? you know, when you step in the room, a lot of times you don't know the person. And there's a lot of times where I've, I've met people and made long lasting friendships. You've made art from scratch and that's a really exciting thing. But it, I see sometimes where it's like, Oh, like I don't know this person that well. I don't want to disempower them. 
there's a way to be constructive without just appeasing and just saying yeah. it's good enough. Like if something doesn't feel right, make a compelling case. And if you're respectful about it, which you should be always, you know, explain coherently and, and make a case for why you think it could be, you know, a different way. You don't have to litigate everything, but, you know, <laughs> I, I think that's an important thing to do. And I think a lot of times the longest re relationships and collaborations I've had have become so long and so fruitful because there's that open honesty with each other. Don't, don't just be like, that sucks. We got to do something else. Like come up with a, a solution and, and an explanation why you think it should be a different way and try it. And like, that works both ways. If someone says to me, Hey, like, I think this is a really cool idea. I'm not sure the execution is just right. Let's try this. I'm like, cool. Let's roll up our sleeves let's do it. and do it. Yeah. And I think a lot of that just has to do with, yeah, like there's a lot of like focus on positivity, but as I said, positivity should never preclude honesty and respectful honesty, you know, yeah. with your collaborators. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be awkward. It, it can totally be awkward. I've mm -hmm. seen some some shouting matches. Oh, yeah. I think a great way to think of it is the word challenge is a great way to pose it as opposed to like confrontation. Like challenge is like, like, I think that can be better. I think we can all be better together. Confrontations like, I don't think that's that great. I got a better idea. You can go sit down now. Yeah. That's disempowering. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Challenging your collaborators is great. I think that's a really great, great angle. I mean, I appreciate when people do it to me. I don't know if I mean, I think, like I said, most of my longer term collaborators probably appreciate it. I mean, it's funny. I, I was, I'm working with an artist and we had a song and I thought the song was really strong and something about it was bothering me. And I tread very lightly on lyrics because that's so often where an artist imparts so much of their, the pathos, their emotional connection with the listener. Like, you know, I tread very lightly there. And I really read the room on that because you can yeah. easily, someone can take it as an insult if you approach it the wrong way. I, that's where like the most tact and bedside manner you can possibly muster up is important. And that's something I'll continue to work at in my career because I never want anyone to feel like I'm disempowering what they're trying to say. Yeah. And that can be hard to express. But I, I was working with an artist who I'd been working with really closely and we were kind of like on like the eighth song out of 10 songs and I kept kind of saying like, you know what, like, I know what you're trying to say lyrically. And she's an incredible lyricist. She's almost like a Joan Didion type where it's like, she does these little vignettes and it ties into this like greater meaning. And you're like, yes, like I connect with that. I, I can, I can see the movie and I can feel what you're saying, like in the bigger picture. Yeah. And it, there was one song where I was like, it's not quite there. Like I have the vignettes. I don't have the bigger tie in to like the greater meaning that you're so good at doing. And I kept challenging her to like, work on the lyric. And in the end it got there and she was like, look, like, I really appreciate you doing that. Like, I feel like this improved the song. And some people might just be insulted and, you know, maybe they don't totally uh, like what I have to say, or maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe I'm not steering them the right way emotionally. I, I try to preface it with that where it's like, this is just my opinion. And like, tell me if I'm missing the mark. It's important to know like what the song is about, I think, yeah. or what the art is about. Obviously there's plenty of music that doesn't have, lyrics but like what is it trying to yeah. convey yeah you know what's the crux of it and I, I try to get that early on because that's your north star that's what you're trying to do is make it about something or elicit some sort of feeling or convey a feeling so and that influences the sonics too mm -hmm. it's like if you really understand the feeling of a song it's like okay this is aggressive well okay let's engineer aggressive or let's mix aggressive or let's not yeah it's funny this came up in a mix recently 
I will not say the artist, but the song was like deeply personal, almost uncomfortably to the point where you're like, wow, this person is really laying it all out of like a particularly harrowing experience. I've sent the first mix out to all the, you know, stakeholders and everyone who was involved in it. Stakeholders. Yeah. I know stakeholders. I, as soon as I said, it, I was like, that's a little bit of a, like, I mean, it's like kind of like a, a cold term, but I mean, it more <laughs> like everyone who's like invested in yes, yeah, the yeah, song yeah. creatively and from the label side of things. I don't mean as like, I don't, I don't mean to impart like some sort of economic aspect to it or right, capitalist right. aspect to it, but everyone involved in the song from the label and the creative team was like, yeah, it sounds great. And the A&R was like, yeah, it's really good. It sounds awesome. I just wonder if we can get this like, monster crack in like almost arena level snare. And I was like, and I called the a and I was like, you know, we can try it, you know, but given the subject matter of the song, like it almost might again, be disempowering to the message and like cheapen the message a little bit in a way. And I, I mean, I wouldn't say in a little way, in a, in a big way, like when I tried it, you know, when he gave me a reference point, I was like, this is like a song that has, absolutely no bearing emotionally on what this artist is trying to say. And we tried it and he realized that, okay, put it back how it was. But it's funny. Like sometimes there's this like divide between what the song lyrically is trying to say and what the sonics are. And sometimes that's really cool. Like, you know, pet sounds, some of the songs are so utterly depressing. Like I just wasn't made for these times. It's just such a, the title itself is so, heartbreaking it's like this is a person who feels so out of place amongst his peers and the world he lives in but the music is like so effusive and buoyant and it's this incredible juxtaposition that i love so good but it's so i just wasn't made for these times it's like so heartbreaking (laughs) in itself you know like the lyrics are there's a lot like self-laceration in the lyrics and it's you know there's like timpani rolls and woodwind flutters and and it's again like so ebullient and that's an example of like contrast being really cool yeah and i I love contrast i mean i i feel like that's the character i'm always trying to i'm always trying to embrace in both like productions writing and in a mix you know like contrast creates depth and it can be a character you use to uh reinforce some sort of emotional direction but yeah you know that i agree the lyric and the intent has to be the, the thing that guides everything else yeah, and like like you said, I agree contrast is a lot of fun. If contrast works, yes, then it works. Whatever works, works. You know, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, contrast is in mixing is also like an incredible, you know, we didn't talk about mixing much, but like I was thinking today, a friend of a friend who's like kind of starting out getting involved in mixing, like mixing their own music was talking to me and sort of sent me a song. was like, would you just like listen to this? And I don't usually like to do that because it's like, if I don't know you too well, I'm not trying to be a referendum for you, you know, necessarily like I'm not trying to say I'm above it or anything, but you know, like if I don't know you too well, it can easily come out like preachy or wrong. True. And they're like, you know, just like listen to what you think. And I was like, well, you know, there's a lot of like stereo stuff all stacked on top of one another. And I was like, you know, not everything has to be stereo. Like maybe you pick a few things to be stereo, a few things to be doubled. And then maybe you kind of have like a mono element on the left and another one on the right. And there'll be like some push and pull in the stereo field. And like, that could be cool, like cool way of creating tension or in the verse, there's a guitar and then there's nothing on the right side. And then in the chorus, something comes in on the right side and you kind of have this like lopsided stereo field, but that's going to create a little tension in, in anticipation. Again, it's like circumventing expectation or playing into expectation. Yeah. And then it comes in on the right or the guitar is pan left and there's like a, 
that's dry. And then there's a pure wet sound pan right off the send of that dry sound. And you kind of get this cool sort of like ghost of the dry element on the other side. So yeah, I mean, contrast is an incredible thing and it doesn't just have to be in the writing or composition in a arrangement. It can also be a mixed thing. If everything's wet, nothing's wet. If everything's dry, nothing's dry. Exactly. I'm sure you do this all the time when people are like, Hey, can you make this brighter? And you're like, yeah, sure. And you make something else darker. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. When someone's like, can you make it brighter? I usually like, I usually aim for like the brightest thing in the mix and turn it up. Like if it's a hi-hat or a tambourine. Yeah. Maybe do that instead of EQing the whole, the whole mix. mix. Yeah. It can be easy to get trigger happy with just like, you know, mix bus EQ and just, I mean, there's a, there's a time where like, I do like the sound of making a big move on the mix bus and like a lot of sound going in. I don't know. Like I forget who was saying it. Someone was like, I like the sound of a lot of sound going into an EQ. Mm, okay. Doing a, an EQ move on like a big group or subgroup or the whole mix. Like there's a sound to that. And I agree, but yeah. Sometimes I'm just like, yeah, maybe the brightest thing in the mix just needs to be louder to make it brighter. Yeah. As long as it's not obtrusive. Yeah, that's a good move. Are you heavy on the mix bus or, or it sounds like you're maybe lighter? It varies. Yeah. Maybe I'm going lighter. I mean, for me, it's sort of like by the time it gets to the mix stage, well, you know, like for me, there's times where I'm writing, producing, engineering, and mixing the song. So like a lot of the decisions happen along the way and maybe like the last mix it's funny, like, so often I send something off to mastering and it's like the Sterling Sound or whoever will call me and be like, uh, it says Rough Mix 11. Is that the right one? And I'm like, yes, the Rough Mix became the main mix and I just didn't change the file nomenclature. And they're like, okay, yeah, we, we kind of, and th- at this point they like, no, they know that at this point. <laughs> Andrew's just sending roughs. <laughs> yeah, the, the fine line between a rough and a main mix is different. If I'm mixing something that I have not touched previously, it's a pure mix project, you know, like, no other involvement up to the mix stage, then it has a different. Yeah. I mean, I should do that. I should just be like, rough, send rough mix back. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's, you know, if, if I'm doing something from scratch, who knows? I mean, maybe I'll have a loaded mix bus. Maybe I won't. Yeah. It depends. I mean, like something like Lorraine will have a loaded mix bus because there's so much automation that has to happen across the mix. I might disengage one EQ and then re-engage another one rather than like mess with, you know, Q and, and frequency points. Right. I will, might change thresholds, you know, in the middle, there's a lot of that on those records because a lot of the songs are in one pro tool session, but they change and evolve over time. And there might be like three movements in one session. So I got to kind of get creative on the master side, but yeah, it depends. Like one thing I've been trying to do recently is just like rely less on limiting. I feel like there was a point where maybe that became a bit of a moral hazard and now I'm spending a lot less time focusing on the limiter, yeah. you know? It's a moral hazard. It's like an arms race, you know? If you get a rough mix that's screaming loud and you have to match it, yeah, it feels dinky by comparison. But I've now started actually kind of taking that as an opportunity to have a conversation with the artist and the producer, whoever's involved, and just being like, you know what, look, like, this is really loud. And sometimes loud is awesome. Like, I can't imagine you know certain punk rock records or industrial records like ministry or nine snails like that has to be loud is it loud because it's distorted is it distorted because it's loud you know it's like one of those (laughs) things some things it's yes like you listen to like yeezus by Kanye west like 
It's both. It's, it's both. loud because it's distorted and it's distorted because it's loud. <laughs> and I love the way that sounds. And like, I think the way that record is sculpted is is super cool. It sounds like totally unique and it's different. And like, is it wrong or does it lack dynamic range? I mean, sure, uh, whatever, yeah. you know, but right. yeah. So it's just kind of like, again, what whatever it calls for, you know, if it's a singer-songwriter thing, I'm probably not crushing it, you know, with ozone or something like that. <laughs> right. I've seen people do that. You know, so, some people do singer-songwriter records that are, like, super bold. And I know, like, Chad Blake mixed um Andrew Bird record from a few years ago. I thought it sounded awesome. And he definitely, like, did his thing. Maybe not the full, like, thing he would have done with, like, Black Keys or Arctic Monkeys. But you can hear, you know, he imparts a sonic character. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. Like, different approach to a, you know, very dynamic kind of singer-songwriter sort of record. I thought it sounded great. The Fiona Apple record Chad Blake mixed also sounded Awesome. Yeah. You know, I got to check those out. I haven't heard those. Yeah. The Andrew Bird record is called Are You Serious? Okay. It's great. Like uh, Tony Berg produced it. Blake Mills plays guitar on it. Who's, you know, Blake's incredible. And um, it's great. Really good songs. There's actually, funny enough, a song with Fiona Apple on it. And um, yeah, it's great. You can hear like, you can definitely hear like the Chad Blake thing with like the beefed up low end and, but it works so well. Like it's never overpowering. It's cool. He's, yeah, it's definitely like kind of like a 70s singer-songwriter record, but with all the bandwidth and resolution and, you know, frequency range that is afforded to us in the world that we live and work in. And the Fiona Apple record is similar to that as well. Amazing. I'm going to check those out. Yeah, it's cool. You know, like to be a chameleon and impart your sound, but also to make it work for the program materials. Isn't that the goal? Yeah. Keep it broad. Oh, so I wanted to ask you two just kind of more technical tips. Well, I guess one's not technical. It just came to me. Sure. Since you do a lot of writing, production, engineering, mixing, mm -hmm. do you have any advice for artists that are probably in that same space who are making their own record from start to finish on how to be as objective as possible at the end? Like, how are you not lost when you mix stuff you produce? Do you separate yourself by like a month or? Oh, that's a tough one. That That is a challenge for me. So if you have any advice for me, please let me know. <laughs> It's really hard. And like, sometimes I will call in reinforcements. For example, on Lorraine, like we had actually tried to have people like mix a few songs top to bottom. And I think, unfortunately, they were set up for failure just because it's like, not because of sessions being big or disorganized or, or plug-in incompatibilities or anything, more just because it's like, sometimes it's hard with a record that involved for an outside ear to be able to like navigate what it is. I mean, especially records that are like that are super involved with a very close set of collaborators and take a long time and are very specific sonically. So for that record, I, we brought in um, a friend of ours and collaborator named Jake Aaron to just like help us finish a few things. Some things he was like, this is done great. Like I'll print your, your deliverables for you. I was like, okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> and then there were other songs where he was like, you know what? I can like, change one or two things here and there and it'll they'll be small but very effective moves like lighter quicker cheaper kind of like moves that are small but really effective and that helps where it's you know and, and he's known me and taja for a long time he worked with us on the first record and he and i used to be studio partners in new york like he gets it he knows the aesthetic he's he's seen it from day one but not been like in the trenches so that's like the perfect person to Help us. And then, yeah, so some songs he didn't touch. He was like, this is done. Some songs he was like, I'll do a few things. And a couple things he was like, you know what? Like, 
Taj and I might've had like some insane idea at the last minute to like, I don't know. I think we definitely like very sped an entire mix bus at one point. I can't remember what it was. I think we might like run everything to a tape machine and like touched it with our fingers and then splice that into the full mix, like, and had to like seamlessly do that. And like, he helped us get to the finish line on, on those last crazy things. And there's a lot of like stemming stuff out on those records and then messing with the stems. So, but for him, yeah, it was just having a little bit of deference was huge. I mean, I, I think that can be important in terms of, for me, if I'm not giving it to someone else, I do think, yeah, take breaks. I mean, I take a lot of breaks on full length projects if I can, like, for me, the best way to like work on a full length is to work in short bursts. Yeah. Have negative space away from it. Don't over listen. I mean, that's a, that's a huge pitfall. Like I know some people and I can even fall victim to this, you know, they're listening in the car. Every time they get in the car, it's like open the Dropbox app or open their Apple music where the rough mixes are. Every time they're on a walk, it's like you need take space. Like, yeah. Cause sometimes you'll open it and be like, Oh, this is done. Like this feels really good. I'm start to finish. You're just kind of like, oh, I'm I'm moved by this start to finish. And there's sometimes you're like, oh, there's like little things I want to take care of. And then there's times where you know, like, oh, how did I miss that? Let me tweak that. That can happen with mixes. That can happen with writing. And then there's times where you like over listen to it to the point where like you start to resent it, and that can be <laughs> the other side of things yeah, where it's like a, a pretty big problem. So I definitely think my first piece of advice would be take breaks. Another thing is, and this can be a pitfall and it works both ways, so I'll give a disclaimer, is find someone you really trust. Don't ask your mom or your dad, who are oftentimes, their perceptions of their children are very colored <laughs> and biased. But find a friend who's on, like I have a few friends who who do this, who are really honest with me. And I, I try to be really honest with them too. And again, reinforcing the fact that like always be respectful right. and everyone should be respectful of people sharing their art and just ask what they think. I mean, if ideally have them come to the studio because you can detect body language really well when you're in the room with someone. And if you're playing something and they're like tapping their foot and then like the bridge hits and they're like not moving anymore and they've gone ice cold, that's something to consider. Yeah. You know, only if you want that outside opinion, sometimes that can be helpful. So I I say again, you know, choose your battles, but find someone who, who you trust and whose taste you trust and who's going to be respectful and, and give you respectful feedback that can help. And so, yeah, th- those are the two things I would say. And then I don't want to go too much into this because it kind of pertains into like how you like to the two questions that you like to close with. I don't <laughs> know if you want to get into that now I, I can revisit it, but you know, at the end of the day, like it's just, you said in a, a question was, was there a point where like I learned to redefine what success is? Right. And I'm bringing this up now because I think it's germane to the conversation. I feel like at the end of the day, like, and I said this earlier, like making a record is about an allocation of resources. I know that might sound like cold or a clinical way of looking at making art, but it is like at the end of the day, my goal is to always make the best record I can given the limitations, whether they be financial, my skill set at any given time, deadlines and time the artist skill set, anything going on in the world that can affect us, you know, like making the best record and the best art you can, given those limitations. If I know that I've done that, I consider it to be a success. That's awesome. And it can be hard to accept that sometimes because look, there's times where I listen back to stuff from 10 years ago. And I'm like, wow, that's a mess, but that is really inspired. 
you know, and then there's times I listen back to things from 10 years ago. I'm like, oh, it sounds really good, but maybe it missed the mark emotionally. And it, it can be hard to see that in the moment sometimes. So it's just about like living in the moment, making the best record you can with the restrictions and limitations at hand and just learning from it and trying to do better next time, you know, as you go through this. And I think if you're working on your own music, it's always important to know if you really love doing this, you will make more music. It's not like a one and done. I, I see this happen a lot where, and it happens a lot with independent artists, specifically younger artists, where it's like, I finished the record and they wait two years to put it out because they're shopping it around. And look, I understand 100% you want to find a release partner. You don't want to just scream into the void. Right. You know, a lot of people are not just doing this for themselves. They're doing this to try to build an audience. I totally understand that. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, I'm not just saying get it out and just move on to the next thing, but understand that if you really love this, you'll keep making stuff. Odds are you will get better and you'll learn from what you've done. And I feel like that's happened with me. And I think it's happened with peers of mine. And I think it's a lot of people would say that, you know, yeah, you just keep learning and keep doing it. Just keep going. So that's kind of answering that final question and tying into like how to maintain some perspective. But if you have any advice for me, you know, as I, <laughs> you know, I'm like, some, yeah, it, it's hard to keep the energy going across a project for me when I'm involved with so many aspects of it. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to open this Pro Tools session again <laughs> yeah. for the 800th time. No, you can get so lost. So lost. I mean, yeah. Like, what do you do? I mean, I there's one project that, you know, is just one of those projects that was amazing. And it's just in the ether, like waiting to come out. And we had rough mixes that everybody loved and then sent some stuff out to mixers. And we weren't like super stoked with how it came back. And it, it was a lot of like, all of a sudden we started chasing the rough a lot. And then, you know, I was like, all right, you know what? I know you guys like want like a hit mixer. Like, let me take a stab at it, th at this. Mm -hmm. And then, I even couldn't beat it. It's like it's like the thing that was in the rough, even though I'm the one that did the rough, and I'm like, okay, what's the problems with the rough? We all like listed out our problems with the rough. And we just sat there with the Pro Tools session, changed just, just those things. And then we listened to it, and we were like, no, nah, fuck it, the rough. <laughs> Should have just like, yeah. you know, eventually it got there. But it's so hard when you are there from the beginning because you can't, it's so hard not to have demo-itis in one way or another. Because you said like, you listen to it in the car. Like, you love the song. Everybody listens to it on the way to the studio, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, where's your objectivity at that point? Yeah, you know, totally. So I, I'm with you. I would, yeah. after that experience, you know, there's like a level of pride as a mixer where you're like, okay, I want to mix this. Like, after that experience, I would probably call somebody first. I'd probably try to send it out before I'd try to do it myself. Yeah. I think that's what I took away from that experience was sometimes it's okay not to do it. Yeah. I think there's a tendency to try to be like, well, I'm in a race against myself or, you know, for some people it's a financial consideration where it's like, well, if, you know, I can bill for the mixing, but, you know, I definitely encourage people to do what's best for the project. Because if you find someone who's really enthusiastic about the art and has a good perspective, that's going to be more valuable for the project than whatever more money you might get from mixing it or putting yourself through the ringer and maybe not adding value. Maybe you start like, overthinking stuff and you start taking away value, you know, that's, that can happen too. So, you know, that's definitely an important consideration. I'm with you on that. It's funny because there's a record that I did for this artist, one I was telling you earlier, where I kind of got involved in like the lyric side of things. And I never like sat down to mix the record. I was super involved. I, I co-wrote a bunch of songs with her. I also, 
you know, we built the songs from scratch. He just kind of came with like an acoustic guitar and a, a melody and lyric, and we would just record it and kind of find a tempo. And then it was also during the pandemic. So I would just be like, here's what I think is like the story. Here's the movie for the song from, from these core elements. And I'd kind of just build the arrangement out and, you know, a couple of weeks later, be like, Hey, here's, here's what I got after working on it on and off for the last couple of weeks. And she'd be like, Oh, this is, I mean, she, I give her credit. She put so much faith in me, you know, and yeah. a lot of pre-production and discussions and getting on the same page happened before we could even be in a position to do that. So, you know, I wasn't just flying blind. I, I knew what her taste was yeah, and what the kind of creative contract was between us. But yeah, in the end of it, I was like, okay, like every time we'd do a new element because a lot it was basic tracking and then kind of adding i would write like a string part or horn part and we'd do ensemble elements stuff like that and i kind of you know balance it and ride it as i went and in the end i was like i hit up a friend who i really trust who i think would really really excels with this sort of material and he was like yeah like do you really want to spend the resources on me to do this he's like why don't you just like take some time away from it and i don't know do like one more listen and you don't do it in the studio, like do it on some sort of consumer playback yeah. device, like a home stereo or in, I got a new car. So he's like doing the new car. It's kind of a cool way to break it in and jot down some notes on a pad of paper. He's like, you're probably, he's like, you're not far off. It's not like, you know, you're, if I put a gun to your head and the record got mastered tomorrow and it had to come out like this, would you lose sleep? And I was like, no, not really. You know, I'm looking to add value where, where it's possible. I want it to be the best it can be. And I did that. And then I, you know, spent, three hours going through 10 songs and just some things I just like turn something down or turn something up or try to make a transition pop more. And I was like, yeah, done. Cool. This hits, this is good. Some things I didn't even touch, you know, it's, and that was hard for me to do. Cause I think so much of it comes from self doubt. Yeah. Totally. You know, where it's like, and this is the other part of like the goal oriented thing, which is, I don't know who said this. I don't know if I'm quoting the phrase properly, but I read somewhere Someone say that comparison is the root of all disenchantment. Yeah, I've heard something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that's, it's so easy as like social beings to, and especially in the age of social media where, you know, all of our peers are posting their accolades and posting success stories to be like, man, I'm in the pit of despair. Like I'm not where this person is. I'm not enjoying the same level of success. And so much of it is a projection. You know, people project their best selves on social media. I don't have to, go into a whole dissection of that psychology. That's right. But just making something great on its own terms for me is like, like I have to make a living. I have to be pragmatic about this. You know, I can be an idealist, but I have to be a pragmatic idealist. Like, yeah. But in terms of like being satisfied goal wise, like, as I said, it's about making the best art you can with the limitations, but also on its own terms. And with mixing too, like, I do think it was helpful for me when I started to, use you know other mixes as a um as a reference point to like learn you know right to be like okay cool like oh this is interesting like this is pan here this is pan there this gets wider here this gets narrower here like this is an interesting move but then you know at a certain point it's like you don't have to reference something and it has to be just like it. it's never going to be you know and yeah. it's the same thing with your career like everyone's got a different path and maybe that sounds too idealist or too much of a self-love kind of thing but I believe that I think comparison is the root of all disenchantment and, and you got to just accept success on, on your own terms and define it for yourself. I couldn't agree with that more. That's like where <laughs> this whole podcast came from. So, yeah, I mean, it's like you, you mentioned like a while ago, you know, 
success of finishing a record is just making, you know, the best record you can within the constraints. And I think that just goes to like your career. And it's like every choice you make, the only thing you can do is make the best choice at the time with the information you have. I mean, I quit a salary engineering job to go work for a producer. And six months later, I quit because I didn't like the outcome. Like, was that... I can't get defeated by that. Like I quit a great job for something that didn't pan out, but that was like the thing that led to the next thing. It's like, oh yeah, you can't get stuck. Did you quit because you were unfulfilled? I don't know. I, I guess I'm curious why. Yeah, to a level of to a level of unfulfillment. It was more. I mean, everybody knows where I worked, so I, I would be yeah careful to describe it. But um, I just got to the point where I wanted to make more decisions the way that I wanted to make them, and I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't into the sessions that I was doing because mm-hmm. I was doing all these pop sessions. And I started to see the writing on the wall, which I've brought up a thousand times on this show, is I went from engineering every day to plugging a mic into a mic pre into a duet and going in the hallway. Yeah, And it's like after six months of doing that a lot, I was like, well, you know what? This isn't even what I was doing, you know, six months ago. I was engineering six months ago. Now I'm, <laughs> now I'm plugging things in and then somebody calls you in and they're like, it's distorted. And I'm just like thinking to myself like, well, that's the knob. You turn the knob down. Like, you need me to come in here and turn the knob down. You need me in here? Or you don't need me in here. Anyway, that's pretty jaded to throw on the podcast. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it comes down to like knowing what you do is as, is as much figuring out knowing what you don't want to do. Yes. Narrowing options can be super illuminating. Totally. You know? Yes. I do think there's a lot of decision paralysis that happens. And that's something that I feel like a lot of people who are doing this kind of in a silo on their own, like maybe making their own stuff top to bottom. And I feel like I got that too in the beginning where, you know, finally I'm like able to sit in the chair and do it. And I'm like, oh man, do I use this LA3 and that LA3 and this and that and like this plugin and that plugin? Or like, I have to use every synth in the studio because I don't have any of these synths. And I have to use every, you know, guitar amp in the studio because I don't have any. And I'm like, no, I don't. I just need to like pick the one and develop a shorthand to learn like, what are the three things that are going to be the best use for this application and just like pick one and, and go for it, you know? And that comes with time and experience and everything, but it does. yeah, it's, it's definitely important. I think to like weed out decisions in order to, you know, save headspace and to focus on um, where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. The only way to figure out where you want to go is to, to go somewhere and realize that that wasn't it. You know what I mean? So yeah, anybody listening that is kind of frustrated with a decision they made in the last year, two years, six months, just get over it. Like it led to something. Don't let it, yeah, you know, paralyze you. But just like uh, with songs, you'll if you're in it for long haul and you really want to do this, and your your heart is truly in it, you will have an opportunity to write more songs. You're not just going to make your first six songs and then that's it. The door's closed. You know. Yeah. True. If that's the case and, and you're discouraged and you don't want to continue, maybe you're on your way to finding out what you really do want to do. Or maybe you'll come back to it in eight years and be like, I'm, I got discouraged and things didn't pan out the way I wanted to, but I'm going to give us another go. It's like not everything is linear. Yeah. No, nothing is linear, honestly, with this. Not to preach. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you one super quick nerd question. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a question about drums. Because you've got Mm -hmm. dope drum sounds. Do you have like one or two just bizarre tips? Not like, not like normal shit, like something weird. Is there anything you love to do that's like weird? Um, So not the usual stuff like that no one probably wants to hear. It's like, it's the drummer and it's in the hands and it's room and drum choice, barring all that stuff. Yeah. I think it comes back to contrast. Like I think uh, like I kind of approach drums 
and a lot of other recording in terms of like, I'm trying to fill in gaps, like drums and some other instruments, like even a piano to a certain extent, it's like multiple instruments in one, Yeah, you know, you have like super high end stuff like cymbals, and then you have lower mid stuff like toms and subsonic frequencies and so on and so forth. So, you know, you're kind of filling in gaps. So for me, it's kind of like if I'm doing my usual, whatever, uh, say you're doing kick snare overheads, whatever, close mics and room mics, I will oftentimes try to find ways to like fill out the mid range in different ways. And, you know, something that I like to do is mess around with mics. Uh, they have very different frequency responses, you know? So yeah, if you're using, you know, big tube condensers like C12s or whatever, or, you, or a big ribbon like Coles as overheads, maybe you want to use something like super nasal and mid-rangey closer to the kit to fill out the upper mid-range. And it could be, I don't know, putting like a PZM mic on the floor right in front of the drum kit. It could be, I just got some contact mics. Those can be so friggin' fun. Those are fun. Tape one to the top of the snare gently. Obviously, you don't want to tape it so much that the tuning or the dampening changes too much. That can be so fun. Like, I don't know, mess with that. Put that through something crazy like a... Memory man, or make sure you pat it too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, Altec Salt Shaker mic. Yeah, awesome. Like super cool room mic. Pretty upper mid range focused. Also very cool vocal mic. Uh, I really like that on some singers, especially singers who have very scoop voices. Mm. Taja from Lorraine has a very scoop voice. She has a lot of deep, rich, low end, and a lot of air, and like not a lot in the middle. So we'll oftentimes pair like an Altec Salt Shaker with a large diaphragm condenser or tube mic to kind of fill in the gaps of her voice. Nice. And then for me, another thing about drums and like is um, you can do a lot of really cool stuff with drums to create a different part. And I try to do a lot of this while the drummer is tracking. I, my philosophy is if it doesn't happen at the time of recording, it doesn't really happen a lot of times. I like that. And when I record drums, I will often have sends set up to different things. Some will be like a parallel compression send so that, there's like something really fun and exciting and done sounding in the drummer's ear and they get excited delays. I mean, like you can get crazy, like a multi-tap delay and then you've like added ghost notes to the drum part and the drummer might hear that in the headphones and will play totally differently or tweak the part to kind of play into that. And you might get something really cool out of it that wasn't there previously. Sometimes it's just a space echo slap or a, a tape delay slap and that adds some bombast and they kind of, they might drag a little bit or they might play a little bit ahead in a cool way to compensate for a delay time. That's, you know, a slap that's sort of dragging them back a little bit. All sorts of stuff like that is really fun. And with Andrew, we did a few things. Like I think, um, I don't know how much he used, but like I had a send going to an H 3000 off the snare and we did some like cool, like it's Josh free. So, you know, Josh is like the archetypal, kind of modern rock drummer and he's oh yeah freaking awesome and hilarious I, I love that guy that was <laughs> so fun and you know i did some h3000 stuff i definitely had the memory man queued up for some almost like you know bonhomie type swung delay stuff at times it was all separate so off of send you know you just have it totally separate you can always mute it or delete it if you don't want it so that's definitely something i do for drums so it's filling in frequency gaps with like different fidelities of mic different attitudes also like so often it's fun to mess around with the balance and be like, oh, like maybe in verse two for the first eight bars, it'd be cool. Or first four bars, if it just goes like totally lo-fi and I just use the like PZM in front that, you know, has no low end in it or yeah. the salt shaker that is all upper mid range and I have my filtered drum sound and then I can just unmute the regions for when I want it to kick back in. So yeah, that plus, you know, 
effect sends and use them or don't. It's fun, but you might, I always try to do it at the time of recording so that it can inform the playing. And that goes for anything really, you know? Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. That was really fun. That was, it is funny that Andrew came out here. I mean, obviously, you know, flying across country to do a few days of drums with me is I'm super grateful. Cause I, I adore Andrew and the artist we're working with is a, a mutual friend. So, and plus Josh, Josh is awesome. So that's awesome. That's good. But with him, it's just, he just sounds that way. Like he starts hitting the drums and it was not a very Josh Freese kid. I think it was like, it was like a Ludwig Vista light kick. And then we use like Gretsch round badge toms, which I would never use like 19, I have a 1964 Gretsch round badge, super warm. Yeah. Toms are tuned up high with dampening. And he used my hi-hats, which are like very like Tony Williams type jazz hi-hats and ride. I don't even know if he hit a crash. There's like very, I don't remember how many crashes he hit. I could probably count on one hand. <laughs> and it sounded awesome. It's like, a, and he was like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. I'll just, I'll play this. And he played like, I have a Black Beauty knockoff from Singapore. That's awesome. And he played that and it just sounded incredible. And it's just, you know, I know it's like one of those things everyone says it's in his hands, but that's kind of a weird kit for someone going for kind of a modern rock type sound. And he, it's just how he hits. It's where he hits the drum. It's how he hits it. It's how he controls himself. And then, yeah, we had some fun little kind of sends to play with in, in the mix. But Andrew's Andrew's killing it on the mix. Sounded awesome. That's amazing. He's great. And it's lucky. I have, you know, a lot of people on your podcast I've had the privilege of working with like Steve Kay, he's a good friend of mine. I had lunch with him last week. Oh, nice. Obviously, I know Pedro really well. I had a fun conversation with Pedro. I really enjoyed that. He's great. I mean, I, I met Pedro when he was still assisting at the village. And he's played drums on stuff for me too. I mean, Pedro's a great drummer. I don't know if you guys talk. I unfortunately have not had a moment to listen to the conversation, but he plays it down. Did you guys talk about drums at all? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah, it's funny. He's great. Like Pedro Coloni, hire him to play drums. <laughs> Do it. He's really good and he's got great feel. And yeah, I mean, everyone on your show that I know I'm privileged and lucky to know them and, and be in the same circle. So awesome. Uh, well, you've heard the show then. So you know what the last two questions are. Mm -hmm. You answered one of them, but I'm going to say it because I have to say it just out of principle. You have to say it. So was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Everybody pause, go back like 25 minutes. That's where it is. <laughs> Are you going to copy it over to the end? Ex exactly. Yeah, we'll, we'll okay. dupe it. it it'll, you'll hear it twice. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very curious now having seen like how this is done and the, the rambling of like what editing magic happens. I'm not even going to cut that out. Okay. I'm going I'm to leave that in. Okay, good. Break the fourth wall. It's not a lot of editing. It's not a lot. Okay. Good. Uh, and so the last question you kind of, you hinted at a little bit. I don't know if you wanted to clarify. What's your biggest goal right now? And what's the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? My biggest goal? I'm definitely my biggest critic. And I feel like I'm in a constant race against myself. And sometimes that can be, it can be very hard. I talked a little bit earlier about comparisons, the root of all disenchantment and we're social beings. It's, it's hard to transcend comparison at times. And for me, I'm very demanding on myself, both in terms of the art I make and what I want tangibly out of my career. And I think something I've made an effort at is to just be kinder to myself and to, you know, again, maybe that's a little too self-care for some people, but it's easy to get into the pit when you're making art and when you're trying to build a career out of it and it's easy to build resentment at others and at yourself. And 
I have made a real effort to not do that and definitely focusing a little bit more and just like, how can I be kinder to myself without becoming complacent? And that's a balance to strike. And I think the way I'm doing it is by, I've definitely the last couple of years spent a lot more time structuring my life better. Yeah, I'm married, so I tend to not work weekends. You know, I'm in my home studio now, but even if I have to pop in and do a mixed revision or bass part came to me and I just want to like lay it in for a song I'm writing or producing, you know, I'll afford myself that. But it's definitely good to take time away from this. So you don't get bored. You don't get jaded. You don't get angry at yourself. Yeah. And you don't get complacent. So that, you know, when I come in Monday, if I'm taking the weekend off, I'm really excited. Like today's what, Wednesday? So I'm going to work all day tomorrow. I am taking Friday off. And then Monday, I'm back in doing two plus weeks on a production project. And I am, I'm psyched now. I'm definitely going to be psyched Monday morning when I've had time to recharge. So yeah, be kind to yourself. Take time away because it'll make your perspective better. Yeah. And just because you're banging your head against the wall for five hours straight on something doesn't mean it's better. So yeah, that's my goal is to just be a little more forgiving of myself. And I think from that, I will be able to challenge myself more without getting discouraged and kind of feeling like the walls closing it on times when you get tunnel vision from working too long or too hard or things like that. Not working too hard, overworking yourself yeah, to the detriment of, of yourself into the art. So yeah, overworking. Yeah, I guess balance. It's hard. I feel like I finally have gotten the hang of balance. Like work, we didn't talk about that much, but like work-life balance is really, it's hard, is really hard. And, um, you know, this is the thing I like doing the most in the entire world, but I also value my relationships with other people and, and, uh, yeah, you got to make room for it. So, and stand up every now and then that's a good thing too. It's easy to spend a lot of time in the chair. I'm sitting down. I'm very, I'm actually six foot seven. I've been sitting this whole time. So you don't know that. Oh, damn. <laughs> it's very hard for someone, my height, you know, as the years go on to be sitting in a chair all day and, you know, not feel the crunch in the back. So, uh, you know, get up and stretch and uh, stay hydrated. That's my other goal. I got to stay hydrated. <laughs> there you go. That is the secret. There's something to, you know, you said essentially be good to yourself, but not get complacent. It's like, I definitely have noticed that I struggled with that. It's like you try to not to be too hard on yourself. And you try not to like kick yourself every time something doesn't pan out or, or whatever it is. And then you start to just like let those things go. And then you're, you can almost like kind of just tread water. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I feel like, okay, I've got this balance where I'm not as crazy hard on myself as I used to be. Mm-hmm. But then you can forget to like push yourself a little bit and be like, okay, this week I'm not doing anything on Tuesday. I'm going to go learn something new, try to expand. So I think it's super important that, to not get in complacent aspect of your comment, I think is really super important for anybody that agrees. I think you just remember, don't get stuck. Yeah. And it's the cool thing about this field is like everything is constantly changing. I mean... Obviously, from the record-making aspect, I mean, it's changing every day. I mean, that's hyperbolic, but it's, it's changing so frequently the way records get made technologically. And it's cool because, you know, I think in 10 years, I don't have the best predictive ability, but I think that it's going to be different than it is now just based on precedent. That means there's going to be new things to learn and new workflows to to adapt to. And I do think, you know, if I have a little downtime, which does occasionally happen, you know, every now and then try to put my energy into 
enhancing a skill or maybe learning a new skill pertaining to what this insane broad job description is <laughs> that sort of like defies description, you know, and defies boundaries. So, you know, if I, this morning I had a couple of free hours and I was like, you know what, maybe I'm gonna, I saw Blake Mills play last week with Pino Palladino and Sam Gendel. And I was like, I'm going to practice, <laughs> you know, it's not something I ever do. Like I very rarely practice guitar or bass outside of a project because, you know, time's limited and it's always kind of an, as an application to a project. But I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to practice some sight reading and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of do some, some practicing. And Blake Mills is one of the only people who can get me to do that on guitar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a time where comparison is definitely the root of all disenchantment. Not that I would ever, not, I'm not even in the same country as he is skill wise, but it's also one of those things where like, I'm like, man, I want to be able to do a kernel of that. And, <laughs> and it's very motivating too. So it cuts both ways. Yeah, totally. Dude, this has been, uh, I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Please let people know if there's anywhere you want to share your Instagram, your website or whatever. Right? Obviously, everyone needs to go listen to Lorraine because we talked about it so much. Uh, li- literally mind-blowing. You, did, you guys did a great job. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. But anything you want to share, go for it. Yeah, you can find me. AndrewLappin.com is where you'll find the most up-to-date info about me and my studio. I have an Instagram. It's... I go through waves of posting and then I won't post anything for months. So I'm going to try to pick it up. It's There's a lot of stuff coming out soon that I, I would like to you know share because I'm proud of it. So at Andrew Lappin is my Instagram. And um, yeah, you know, anyone who wants to get in touch, there's any contact form on the website. If you have any anything you want to reach out about, anything you want to talk about or inquire about. And um, I'm around. Great. Well, ho- hopefully... Uh... We'll uh, we'll run into each other from this town at, at some point. Yeah, for sure. We're we're, we're locals. I'm here, and um, yeah, I'm I'm psyched to listen to some more of the the archives or the previous episodes. Cool, man. I got some road trips coming up. I'll throw them on. Nice. I appreciate it. All right. Well, have a good one, and uh, I'll see you around. That's it for episode seventy four. Thanks to Andrew Lappin for coming on the show. Please check out his work, particularly that Lorraine album we mentioned. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. It's a huge help to us. Another huge help to the show is our Patreon. If you're into supporting us that way, it's greatly appreciated. It helps keep the show running. I guarantee it is not buying me new cars. And finally, thanks to Stephen Boyd for editing this episode. You crushed it again. And please consider joining us over on the Complete Producer Network. There's a ton of great conversations going on over there. So on that note, I will see you all next time.